Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Thank you very much. How about yourself? I, I'm doing doing very well. I'm on research leave this semester, which which is good for the sleep and the anxiety and all the other things. Right. Good. Glad to hear it. Right. Uh, so one of the big news stories in the past few weeks has been Congressman George Santos, at least we think that's his name, um, <laughs> who represents a district in Long Island and was recently um, sworn into the House after all the kerfuffle we talked about in our last episode. Uh, and it's come out since his election um, that much of his biography was uh, fabricated, I think might be the right way to say it. Uh, including his education, his business experience, his family background and religion, uh, and uh, his athletic career. Yes, his sporting achievements at yeah. Baruch College, which he didn't attend. <laughs> yes, yes, but he was supposedly a very good volleyball player, which, looking at him, doesn't strike me as very likely, but, you know, for now. Uh, and turns out there may be some financial issues with his biography, and so we wanted to talk about... Frauds and impersonators and and other kinds of uh, people of the, that ilk. So, so David, before we try to historicize this, and to some mm. extent, I think George Santos might be fairly unique in history. <laughs> um, well, in fact, we caught him, right? Uh, one, one imagines there are a bunch of people who are fraudsters who we have people haven't caught that that you know. There's a whole category of those. Well, and we'll never know, yeah, will exactly. we? <laughs> but but. Well, I, I'm interested. We haven't we haven't discussed this in in any detail. Uh, I'm interested in your impressions. What's your reaction if I if we were in the pub right now? That's the premise of this this yes. podcast originally. And I just said George Santos to you. What would your reaction be? Well, I think it's amazing that he was able to fabricate this much stuff and and get away with it for as long as he did. Now, as long as it did means basically the, the year of the campaign. It does seem as if there was like a local newspaper who figured some of it out before the election, but that that, that was sort of swamped by, by everything else. Um, the politics of it, I think, are fascinating. Obviously, the Republicans have a very slim lead in uh, the House, and Republicans in, in New York seems to have turned on him, uh, but Republicans who are in Washington seem to be throwing their hands up and saying, look, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, and I think part of that is about how slim uh, the House majority is. I think all of it is about you know, that. that. I mean, uh, if they had a 30-seat majority, majority... Then they could probably kick him out and it'd be, it'd be fine. Um, you know, one of the intriguing things about this, this question is, and, and this, this is Santos's position, so we should at least consider it, the fact that he lied about all this stuff shouldn't, he says, shouldn't matter. He... People voted for him because of his positions on issues, and, and that the the fact that he made up all the rest of his biography is irrelevant. That he, he is a he's a representative of a certain constituency, and he's going to work for them. Um, but yeah, it is quite shameless all the things he lied about. I mean, his his uh, the Republican caucus, most of the people who've gone on the record, and mm. frankly, they're trying to avoid going on the record about this yes. to the extent they can. Um, but anybody who has spoken, particularly Kevin McCarthy, for example, the, the, the House Speaker, the, their position seems to be, well, he was elected by his constituents and we, we stand by that. Mm. And it's essentially the only position they really can take. Um, they don't want to say we're standing by this liar. Um, what is interesting to me is, and you, you, you referred to this in your own response, is that um, 
a lot of this was known in mm. that the, you know the, the the North Shore Leader I think is the name of the, the newspaper on Long Island that that exposed a lot of this stuff before the election. Some of his Democratic opponents came up with some of this information, uh, or, or the, the, the um, he ran for Congress twice. He mm. ran in twenty twenty and lost, and ran in twenty twenty two and won. And so it, it some of this information came out during those campaigns um, locally. Uh, so, so it wasn't as though people were totally unaware of this. It's the scale and scope of it, however. I mean, as this broke between late November and really the past few weeks, mm. it's been extraordinary the things he, he seems to have lied about, whether it was where he studied, if he studied, whether he played volleyball. Uh, you know, he claimed at one point that his mother died on 9-11 or as a consequence of 9-11... Uh, he claimed to have uh, been descended from Holocaust survivors, uh, even though that doesn't appear to be the case. He claimed to have been Jewish, uh, and it was uh, came up in the context of the, of the Holocaust connection. And then he claimed to be Jew hyphen-ish. <laughs> As I, 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 don't I don't know what that, that means, means, but... <laughs> Jewish curious or Jewish adjacent. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and claimed to have worked for Goldman Sachs. You know, there's a whole... Has legal problems in Brazil that are following him mm-hmm. now? Because yes. he was, he seems, uh, and there's questions about Russian financing of his campaign potentially, and so yeah. there's all kinds of, of, of things. I mean, it's it's frankly unbelievable, <laughs> uh, and it's uh, and, and what what is a little bit surprising, mm-hmm. I suppose, is that you know he's just been given two committee assignments by by the in the in the new Republican House. Now they're not important committees. But, but he was given committee assignments. So he hasn't, you know, there was that scene during the prolonged um, uh, fight over the election of the speaker that we talked about last week um, at, when he was sitting alone because nobody would sit with him. Exactly. You don't <laughs> want that quite picture sad. Taken. You know, if you're, if you're you know, Lauren Bobert had people sitting with him. Exactly. <laughs> Matt Gates had people sat with him um, and he was sitting on his own. It was actually quite sad uh, as he was sitting on his own because nobody would have anything to do with him but they do seem to have they seem to be making their peace with him and he seems to Mm -hmm. be riding it out and in this it's of a piece with what we've seen in politics should be said on both sides of the Atlantic Mm -hmm. where people and Santos may not survive this but people seem to survive um, being exposed uh, for their mendacity in ways that in a previous generation would seem to have been unsurvivable. But we'll see, won't we? Well, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it, it, politicians lying about their experience or exaggerating their experience or, or, or you know, magnifying their roles and various things. That's not that uncommon, right? That, that, that people tell stories that... that, that Magnify their importance, um, or even you know fudge some of their credentials. But the the scale of this is, is quite, you know, it's hard to tell like what actually is true about this guy, uh, which I think makes him. Yeah, when President Biden first ran for president in the nineteen eighties, mm. in nineteen eighty eight, you know, he was exposed as having exaggerated elements of his own background in terms of uh, particularly his academic achievements, and this sure. is well documented. Santos is not. That's not no, this. Yes, no. no. <laughs> Uh, and, and George whether, W. Bush did the same thing. Like, lots right, of people did. Right, and a lot of people, well, we all kind of 
make sense of our own lives. We put them into a narrative form, and and you know most of us tell a narrative about ourselves that flatters it's ourselves. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, it's it's truth adjacent. Well, and, and, <laughs> but and, and, this and is not what sound no, no, is doing. And there's you know there's the, sort of the cultural um, push to do that, where people are you know students are told like you know sell yourself in your you know cover letters kinds of stuff. But this is a, a different. Uh, order of so let's try to historicize this. Let, let's look back at um, and uh, some previous political uh, figures in the United States um, who who have done this and try to make sense of this. And then maybe we we've got some other examples that are non-political, which are often quite amusing. Yeah, well, what's your what's your closest analog to uh, to George Santos? My closest one, I think, is a congressman named Douglas Stringfellow. But I think I, I want to go back further in history. Okay. So, so uh, I, you know, as as is our ostensible uh, model, I um, want to go back to the 18th century. So the the one who Thomas Jefferson didn't make up all of his Thomas life. Jefferson did not make up his resume. Okay, good. He he, he did Thank not goodness. make up his resume. Yeah, <laughs> he's got other issues. He's got not... other issues, but not this one. Um, I, th- I think the one from the revolutionary era who comes to mind is uh, William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling. And he's known as Lord Sterling. He was descended, his, his, his father um, and his parents were, were Scots. Uh, he was born in New York. Um, he had a claim. He was a descendant, he was a collateral descendant of a man who held the title of the Earldom of Sterling mm. in Scotland. Whether he had a legitimate claim to the, that title or not is, is um, I was going to say it's indisputed. It seems to be beyond dispute. He didn't. Hmm. <laughs> Nonetheless, he claimed that title and he went to court in Scotland. And our, our British listeners will know that this very week there's a, there's, a, there's a controversy unfolding here in the UK about the relative authority of uh, the Parliament at Holyrood here, here, here in Edinburgh and the Parliament in Westminster about um, Scottish legislation and and there are echoes of this uh, in in William uh, in Lord Sterling's case. So what happens is Lord Sterling. I'm going to call him Lord Sterling because he called himself Lord Sterling. Um, Lord Sterling goes to court in Scotland in 1759, and a Scottish court recognizes his title. He was supported in his case by the Duke of Argyle, who's an important figure in Scotland at the time. And the Earl of Bute, who's a very important figure um, in, in uh, UK politics at the time. In part, they support his claim because if that claim is realized, he'll have access. He, he will be able to claim many, many thousands of acres of land in North America. Um, and, and they themselves had an interest in that. So there's 18th century politics is often corrupted by land claims overseas. So in 1759... He gets a Scottish court to recognize his title. But in 1762, the House of Lords in Westminster rejects his claim, basically examines his claim, says you're not eligible to sit in the House of Lords, and you're not a lord, this title is invalid. And so that seems to be the end of it, except that Sterling, William Alexander, calls himself Lord Sterling for the rest of his life. He sets himself up in a kind of, he, his, he did inherit some wealth from his father, although he lived way beyond his means. He sets himself up to live as a lord in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Um, okay. You know, yeah. Lord he, of New Jersey. He, yeah, he acts as basically the lord of New Jersey. Uh, and, and so Lord Sterling, 
He's not lying in that he did have a claim, and it was a claim recognized at least by a court at one time, but that claim was later invalidated, but it was a big part of his public persona. He does go on and have a fairly uh, significant military career during the War of Independence. He fights on the side of the Patriots. He's one of Washington's generals, uh, but again, insists on calling himself Lord Sterling. And I think there's a thread that runs through this. One reason it's worth talking about him is there's a long thread in some of these cases, and we see it with George Santos, where mm. the connection is overseas, it's it, someplace else, yeah. which makes it difficult to verify. There's also a long tradition, and you know this um, probably better than me, especially in the 19th century, of sort of would-be and fake aristocrats right. Yes, you know, there's tons of coming guys. to America and claiming well, you think titles. About, you think about sort of Huckleberry Finn, you know, where you've got... To nobility that, or nobility, quote unquote, who were on the raft with them, you know, and and uh, that that kind of story was was part of the reason why that works in you know in, for Twain is because those kinds of stories were ubiquitous of somebody being the lower duke of such and such and being you know deprived of their title and, and in exile or something. Yeah, that's well. And, and I, in fact, the other story that's dominated one of the other stories that's dominated the news in the past couple of weeks has been. Prince Harry's book and Prince Harry's interviews. And it, there's been an interesting transatlantic... Mm. Uh, the response to that th that story has been very difficult on both sides of the Atlantic. And, and Sterling, if you will, there are echoes of all of this. And the, 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 there's the kind of claim to an arist aristocratic title. Uh, and there's the fact that this is overseas and it's not clear. Mm. Um, and, and, and a lot of the stories we're going to talk about have those kinds of connections, including Santos. Yeah, yeah. You know, sure. because Santos's origins are in Brazil, and, and so this is one thing that uh, makes that possible. So, so I think Lord Sterling is, is a, if you will, I won't say he's a founding father of mm -hmm. American grifters, but he's, he's got a claim. Okay. He's got a claim. What about... No, but no, no, do you yeah. think that he believed that he was the heir? Oh, that's a good question. Because I think it's not a fraud if you, you think it's true, right? You know, I think there's a bunch of things where your parents tell you, oh, you're descended from such and such, or, you know, that kind of thing, and you believe your parents because children do that. You know, do you think he thought of himself as Lord Sterling, or did he say, like... Boy, I'm pulling a fast one on George Washington. So, so okay, that's that's a really interesting question, and and uh, your your question calls to mind the great line from Seinfeld from by George Costanza: "It's not a lie if you believe it." <laughs> I think he, I think he's right. You know, and, you... and with Sterling, I think he might have believed it at one point, but he did. You know, the fact that he's got to go to court to prove it. Mm. Uh, indicates that this is more than just a family tradition. Now, that would all could suggest, yeah, he believes it. Clearly he believes he's gone to court, he spent money to do it. But as I as I suggested before, he does have a financial interest in in oh, so sure. doing so. And that claim was subsequently rejected by the House of Lords. So so in terms of the kind of constitutionality of the decision, mm. it seems quite clear that his claim was invalidated, yet he continued to use the title. He continued to use the title mm. while fighting for independence from Britain. <laughs> of course, but, yeah. in a cause to create a republic like, where there would be no titles. Now, he died in 1783, so he didn't live to see the Constitution, which would have made his title you know, illegal anyway. But um, I, I think that's an interesting question. I have a PhD student uh, who, who's working on Scots, the, the Scots who, who fought with Washington, mm. and she's writing um, about Sterling. So yeah. I'll have a better idea when I see the products, the fruits yeah. of her research. Okay. But, uh, I'm well, not sure. But it may be hard question. to tell because yeah, you have to right. get inside his head and, and he's been dead for two centuries. So um, 
David, before we talk about, I know you've got a really good one from, from your period, but before we get to that, I want to talk about the concept of the confidence man. If sure. Because it yeah, comes yeah. before. So in 1849, a guy gets arrested in New York. He's tried, named William Thompson, yeah. and he's called the confidence man. And of course, a decade later in 1857, almost a decade later, we get Melville's uh, novel of the same name. What is a confidence man? Well, so so what Thompson would do, and, and it's interesting about thinking of when he's doing this. He's doing this at the moment in which the United States is becoming much more urbanized. You're getting much larger communities. People are moving from rural areas and into, into cities. And Thompson is playing upon uh, people's distrust with, with, with how the society is changing. So what he would do is he would go up to people and he would say, hello, and he'd be really well-dressed. So he would sort of give off an arrow of, of somebody, of a gentleman of respectability. And he would greet a stranger, but he would greet them as an old friend. It's like, good to see you, old friend. You know, isn't this a wonderful place we're in? Isn't it horrible that people don't trust each other anymore? And the person would, of course, try, try to sort of pretend that they, they knew him because he seemed to act like they knew him. And he said, you know, people don't trust each other anymore. Here, here's what we should do. You should give me your watch for 24 hours just to show that you have confidence in me as, as, as an individual. And the person would give him his watch. And Frank's just taking off his watch for listeners who can't see us because we're in a room together uh, by ourselves. And, and then he would take the watch and sell the watch. Uh, but he would sort of prey on people's confidence in him um, to, to get their, their pocket watches and, and whatnot, or, or cash sometimes. Um, but it's, it's predicated, I think, in part on, on the ways in which American society was changing at this very particular you know, moment in the, in the antebellum period. Um, and this becomes such an archetype that by 1857 we get Melville's novel, The Confidence Man, and that's a weird book. Have you read it? No, I don't I mean, think it, so. it's a really weird book. It's the last novel that Melville wrote, um, and it's it 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 concerns uh, a group of people on a steamboat heading down the Mississippi to New Orleans, and it's roughly parallels kind of Chaucer's, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. There are people telling their mm. stories. But one of at least one of them is a confidence man, but nobody knows who which one, and so they're all telling tales. And and on one hand, you you talked about Twain. Twain's very interested mm. in this kind of, basically the the kind of falsity and the the kind of bullshittery mm. of the nineteenth century in America. Um, and the confidence man is a, it's a, it's a weird book, but it's a really interesting book in that there are lots of archetypes and people lying to yeah. each other. Well, one of the things about you know that makes the nineteenth century interesting is you do have these places where you're having strangers interact with each other. Right, a steamboat is a place where a bunch of people get in the boat. You don't know who anybody else in the boat is. People are presenting themselves in various ways, which may or may not be truthful. And questions about honor are very important in the 19th century. People take honor very, very seriously. So to, to challenge someone and say that they're lying is is a real affront in the 19th century. And people duel over other kinds of nonsense. Yes, in both Congress and Parliament, you can't call somebody a liar. Liar, right. Uh, you can call them all other kinds of things, but but there's 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 you know that kind of standard was very important, and so it sort of set the framework for for um, you know these kinds of confidence games. It also you know the nineteenth century is a time in which you can reinvent yourself in a tremendous way. You can always go into a new city or a new town, 
and make up a new name for yourself, make up a new background for yourself, and people have to sort of assess, you know, do we trust who this new person is and, and what they're saying? And if you're in a community where everybody's a new person, like on a steamboat, you know, how do you, how do you trust people or not? And think about gambling that goes on in steamboats, you know, all these other kinds of things that are predicated upon a certain level of both, you know, trust and, and assumptions that other people are cheating you. Right, and that's I mean Melville's playing with that concept exactly. and that and that um, that kind of venue. Yeah, which, yeah, and there's a lot of those in the nineteenth yeah. century. So, so back to politics, though. So, David, because I know you've got you've got a very good example, uh, which is uh, really a better antecedent to Santos than than uh, Lord Sterling was, I think. So, do you, do you want to tell well, us about it? Yeah. So, so this example, in some ways, it, it's very much like Santos, but in other ways, it's very different. Um, and it's uh, Congressman by the name of, of Robert Brown Elliott, who was a uh, black congressman from South Carolina during Reconstruction. So this is the time in which there are a, a handful of African-Americans who get elected to Congress, and he's one of them. Uh, there's the famous sort of drawn many people may have seen of, of black congressman during Reconstruction, and he's the guy in the lower right in that image. Um, in his official congressional biography, he says a number of interesting things. He says he was born in Boston, he says he uh, was educated in England. He attended a place called High Holborn Academy in London. And then he said he went to Eton. And then he said he was trained after Eton uh, in law by um, a barrister named Sergeant Phil uh, Fitz Hil Hilbert. Uh, and then he says he comes back to Boston and then he goes to South Carolina and runs for Congress. Um, During his lifetime, people believed all of those things. They introduced him as the queer congressman who was born in Boston and went to Eton. Frederick Douglass, who knew him very well, believed all these things and, and repeated them in a biographical essay he wrote about Eliot. Other prominent people seemed to sort of buy this narrative that he told. Historians who've gone back and looked at Eliot have discovered some interesting things. There's no records of him or his family in Boston prior to the Civil War. This High Holborn Academy he said he went to in London, as far as anyone knows, didn't exist. Eton had no black students in the 19th century, so he didn't go to Eton. And this lawyer he said he trained with in London also didn't exist, as far as anyone can tell. In fact, all the details of his life prior to uh, 1867, when he becomes an associate editor of a newspaper in Charleston, um, is a complete blank page. We have no idea who he is or where he's coming from. And historians have reached different conclusions about his background. Some people think he may have been born in Liverpool. Uh, there's a historian who wrote a book who said that. Some people think he was born in Jamaica. Some people think he may have been born in Boston, uh, but fabricated the British education. Some people thought he may have been born in South Carolina and created this ex exotic uh, biography for himself for whatever reason. The thing that's interesting about Eliot, regardless of what his background is, is he was actually a really good congressman. I mean, I think if people who were looking at, at important political figures who have been overlooked from Reconstruction, he's really, you know, he gives a number of important speeches about civil rights in Congress. He has a debate with Alexander Stevens, who was the former vice president of the Confederacy, about uh, the need for civil rights legislation. He gives a funeral oration for Charles Sumner after his uh, death. 
but he did seem to fabricate uh, much of his biography. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. So, so does this suggest that we should have high hopes for uh, George Santos? Maybe he'll become a very successful congressman. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I don't have high hopes for George Santos just because he seems like a very different sort of figure. Um, and the question, I guess, becomes, you know, what are the motivating factors that leads someone to create a fake biography? Yeah, so why did, why did he, I mean, I, you, you've already stipulated that we don't know much about him, so you might yeah. not be able to answer this, but um, I'll ask you to speculate. Why lie? That's a really good question. Um, and uh, people who have tried to sort of puzzle this out point to a few things, potentially. Um, he's the, of the black political figures in the 19th century, he's the darkest skinned of them, which is, people always point this out in, in the 19th century. And therefore, he may have had to legitimize his intelligence in a way that light-skinned African-Americans might not have. Some people have made that argument. Um, there are people who, who say maybe he has changed his name and maybe the reason why we can't trace him prior to 1867 is that he was working under a different name. That's a possibility. But I don't know. I think he may, largely seems to have been self-educated. Uh, but, but he seems to have been very smart. If you read his speeches, like he's clearly somebody who was very well-read. Some people said he spoke with a slight British accent. Um, so, you know, whether that's affected or whether that's, you know, product of being born in England and um, you know, fabricating some of his existence. But the fact that he sort of creates a, a fake biography that's very hard to check, right? I mean, nobody in the 19th century wrote a letter to Eaton and said, hey, did you have this guy who was a student there in the 1850s? Because they just didn't do that. Um, so I think, you know, the... the, the Distance of it allowed him to sort of create a, a fake biography. So we're back to the overseas connection yeah, is, is an important... Makes, makes it easier to, to, to... And I think generally, you know, I think fact-checking things now is so much easier than it was in the 19th century. I mean, I think the fact that we can go now and try to look at his military record and say, like, did he fight? There's a bit about whether he may or may not have fought in the Civil War, and he had this leg injury that he at various points attributed to military service. Um, but we haven't been able to track that down either. But it, so it really, it really is kind of a, a blank slate before uh, 1867. Um, and when, when did he die? He died in 1882, I want to say. Were, was the, I'm going to say deceit. Okay. <laughs> did, did it come out during his lifetime? No, it didn't. Right, did it come out after his lifetime? It only really came out uh, in the mid twentieth century. Okay, so, so in the, like when he died, no, 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 no. And um, it was not really until historians are trying to sort of piece together what's this guy's life like. But people writing um, about him in the late nineteenth century, you know, who are writing it. There's a bunch of books that are written in the late nineteenth century that are basically like famous African Americans you should know. You know, that are written by uh, African Americans trying to sort of create a. a set of biographies that, that people should be familiar with and he's always included in those and people repeated the facts that he said about himself um, so they repeat about him being born in Boston and going to this high Holborn Academy and Eaton and etc so he got away with it oh yeah and he and the fact both he both got away with it and if that's the right way to think yeah about I mean I, he doesn't seem to have profited from his lies that that's did he? Well, I mean, not financially. Um, 
you know, he was elected to Congress. Well, the question is whether he would have been elected to Congress from South Carolina, a predominantly black district. You know, he won his races overwhelmingly. Um, and he was only forced out of office um, basically due to white supremacy, supremacist violence in 1876. Um, you know, yeah, I'm not sure he profited in that way. Um, no, I mean, we joked earlier about the, the ones we haven't heard no. of. Uh, this is a case where of somebody who more or less seems to have got away with it. If that's the right is, way is to that, think about it, yes. Yeah, if, yeah. if that's the right way to think about it. Yeah. I, I mean, that might, that, that's a slight, maybe an uncharitable framing, but it's... Look, it, it's tricky because he's somebody, you know, looking back at it, he's somebody, you know, I've done some uh, some work on his life, and, and he's somebody I, maybe you can tell from what I've been saying about him, somebody I admire. He, he was somebody who was very brave. He's somebody who spoke very well on, on, on very challenging issues at a very difficult time. But he does have this part where he is does seem to be creating a past for himself that isn't his own. And, and I'm not quite sure what to do with that. How do historians treat this now in the literature? Uh, there isn't a huge amount of literature on him. Uh, there's a, a, a biography that was written by a, a non-historian, a, a, I think a novelist in the 1970s. There's a few other sort of biographical, short biographical essays. And people have sort of thrown up their hands and said, Maybe he was born in Liverpool, maybe he was born in Jamaica, maybe he was born in... Who knows, right? Like, the, the, the evidence is, is not there to, to support one way or the other. Uh, there is the evidence that, that the things he said about himself may not be true, or probably aren't true. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Um, but I mean, in terms of somebody who's... Been, like Santos is a whole cloth inventing a story for himself, I think he's... Um, Interesting in that respect. So I think I think there are categories of, mm. of politicians and uh, that that have kind of lied about their past. But before we get to mm. those, and I, and I know you've given some mm. thought to this, um, I just want to uh, mention one other who's who's a little bit like your example, mm. but later, who's Douglas Stringfellow. Okay, who was a congressman from Utah who was elected in 1952 to Congress, and Stringfellow, his story is actually quite sad. Uh, in a lot of ways. So he was a, um, he uh, was from the, uh, he was of Mormon background and he, when he ran in 1952, he made of great, he made lots of great claims about his wartime service um, in the Second World War. He claimed that he'd been in the OSS, the antecedent to the CIA, and that he had captured he, uh, an important German physicist who was brought to the United States after the war, um, that he'd been captured by, he himself had been captured by the Germans and tortured at Belsen, the concentration camp. Uh, and he claimed that while he was being tortured there, uh, that he had a kind of religious awakening and then that, 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 that really deepened his, his, his Mormon faith. And he spent a lot of time talking about that after the war. He became a fairly prominent local um, media figure um, and uh, on, on radio in particular telling these stories. And he ran for Congress successfully in 1952. He claimed to have been paralyzed as a result of his, of his uh, wartime service. Um, and then when he ran for re-election in, in 1954, uh, his Democratic opponent basically exposed all of, most of this as a mm. lie. Now, now, uh, Stringfellow had served in the war. He'd served in the in the Army Air Force, the, the antecedent to the, the U.S. Air Force, and he'd been badly wounded. He stepped on a landmine, um, and and although he wasn't paralyzed, he did walk 
you know, his, his, uh, he walked with a cane and, um, you know, his, his, he was badly injured. Um, but most of the stories he told were untrue. Hmm. And as a result of this, he was exposed and, um, and he lost his, he, in fact, I think he lost the primary in 1954. The Republicans held the seat, but he lost the primary if memory serves. But I think that is a, I think this is a case that uh, I thought of and, and, and uh, read about uh, with regard to Santos because there was a level of deceit here. Mm. One of the things we'll talk about, and I know you've got a long list mm. about, is people lying about their military service. But this is a kind of uh, order of magnitude different from that. I mean, he was claiming to have done things and to have received medals and mm. things like this that, that he did not receive. And it's very hard to reconcile these. I do wonder, however... And we might need to think about this with regard to, to George Santos, mm. the degree to which Stringfellow, who himself was badly injured during the war, might have been suffering from PTSD or some sort mm. of um, uh, suffering from the consequences of his service. And this might have contributed to the deceit he engaged in. I'm not suggesting Santos has anything like that, any kind mm. of trauma. But Sant there might be something wrong with Santos. In other oh, words, sure. you know, in other words... It's one thing to look at these people and say, well, they're lying. You know, Lord Sterling lied about his title in order to get rich. Okay, mm. that makes sense. And we, we've got lots of examples of that. And people might lie about their backgrounds in order to win political office. But, but it's also possible that in some of these cases, these people are actually unwell. And I, and I think that might be the case with Stringfellow. I'm not, I yeah. mean, I don't have the professional ability to, to, to make that assessment. But it, it's one thing that occurs to me as a possibility. And it does give me slight pause. I mean, it's, it's very hard not to mock George Santos because he's very mockable. Yes. <laughs> and the lies are so absurd. But they're so blatant and so absurd, one wonders if there's not something wrong with him. But anyway, yeah. so, so I don't really well, have anything I think, I think this category of a military imposter, you know, I think we've got a, a lot of people who are doing that at various points in time. And, you know, thinking about contemporaries of Stringfellow who, who exaggerated their experience in World War II. Uh, Joseph McCarthy vastly uh, expand, you know, uh, claimed he had flown a lot more um, air missions than he did. He even got some, uh, because of his sort of fake service, he got himself a, a real medal based on his fake service because he faked some documents to, 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 to get himself an a, um, air service medal. L. Ron Hubbard, the... the uh, science fiction author uh, and uh, uh, religious leader, if that's what you want to call him, uh, also served in World War II. Uh, but if you read his sort of uh, Scientology profile, he was the most decorated war hero of the Second World War and fought in all of the things, and he was not. Um, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other sort of similar sort of examples of, of people who are expanding their, their military service in quite profound ways. And then you also got guys who, who didn't serve at all on the military, who, who claimed to. And I think that's an interesting sort of category of people. Um, we can think about Sir Richard, Richard Blumenthal uh, from Connecticut, who was in the military but claimed to be actually have served in Vietnam when he was not stationed overseas. Two people like uh, Walter Williams, who claimed to be the last Civil War veteran uh, when he died or before he died in 1959. Turns out he was not a Civil War veteran. He was like five years old when the war ended. Um, and in fact, we have a lot of people who were claiming to be Civil War veterans in the early part of the 20th century who were not Civil War veterans who made it up. 
Um, occasionally you would have reunions of Civil War veterans where the all the people there who, in the reunion were not Civil War veterans, but they were all <laughs> claiming to be Civil War veterans. Um, you know, and so you got these sort of 90-year-old men who look, you know, like they could be, but but weren't. Um, there's a great book by, by Adam Dombey that looks at, at particularly at the Confederates who sort of made up their uh, military career or, or elaborated in, 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 in creative ways about their, their military career. And one can sort of imagine all the reasons why one would do this, both for political reasons and, and other reasons why one would sort of fabricate a military career for oneself. Um, I think we've talked in the past about Joseph Ellis, the, the historian who claimed to have uh, served a tour, tour in Vietnam when in fact he, he did not. Um, you know, and, and for politicians, the obvious sort of reasons for, for claiming a military service. Uh, yeah, in the recent um, election, uh, one of the guys running in, in J.R. Majewski, who ran in Ohio, who lost, mm. but was exposed as having lied about his, his service in, I think it was Afghanistan. He claimed to have been in Afghanistan, and, it, and it's unclear where he was, but he doesn't seem to have been in Afghanistan. Right. Um, and Madison Cawthorn, the recent congressman from, from North Carolina, who again um, is no longer in office, but claimed. I mean, he he of course had had a severe car accident and is is uh, was partially paralyzed from that. But he claimed that as a result of that, he was unable to go to the Naval Academy. But he never got into the Naval, Naval Academy. Academy, right? Um, and Mark Kirk, who was a uh, was actually uh, he was a congressman from Illinois and then a senator for one term before he lost to Tammy Duckworth. Claimed to have had a um, uh, much more extensive military record than than he did, um, so so there's a lot of exaggeration of military service. What's interesting, um, I think, is the people who make it up completely. But, yeah. But I think again, it go, going back to the early nineteenth century, sorry, the early twentieth century, the late nineteenth century, you could do that then because the, these things were much more difficult to check. check right. And whereas now it, it, it's, I'm slightly surprised at people who lie about it because they are found out or should be found out. Mm. But Richard Blumenthal is still a senator from Connecticut. Right. So, you know, I mean, he came up with a kind of explanation saying, you know, I exaggerated slightly. I was, he did, he was in the military. Yeah. He served during the Vietnam era, just not in Vietnam. Right. Yeah. But uh, that's a distinction that's very important to Vietnam veterans. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, to other combat veterans as well. But it's it's interesting that Blumenthal, people occasionally make comments about it, but but he seems to have kind of overcome this. Mm. Um, but so, so we've got we've got military services. You know, we we're back to people embroidering things. You know. Hillary Clinton claiming that they landed under sniper fire in Bosnia when she was first lady back in the in the mid nineties was you know not true. True. Well, well, now she went to Bosnia. Yes, <laughs> and there were snipers in Bosnia. Right, but but they weren't shooting at her when or at her team when they landed. And so you can politicians often embellish things, and then they embellish the embellishments. Right? And, and and there's a whole question in there of memory. Does, does you know when she said that? Did she believe that to be true? Right. Um, which. Who knows? Yeah, you can't. But are we? But but David, 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 are we being unfair? Are we applying a different standard? So where you know, um, would would you extend that to George Santos? Well, the th I think the difference with George Santos is, I mean, unless he has some um, 
a challenged grip on reality. Like, you know, saying you went to a university that you didn't go to is at a different order of magnitude than I was in a, you know, I visited a country that was in the middle of a war during, you know, uh, that, that, that had some, some um, security challenges. I, you know, uh, I, the, the, the degree of Santos's fabrication is, is, I think, of a different order of magnitude. So what do we make of, so Marco Rubio, yes. the senator from Florida, claimed that his parents fled Castro. Mm-hmm. It's now well, a well-established fact that they actually emigrated to the United States in 1958. The Cuban Revolution was in 1959. Um, is that, what do you make of that? Um, you see, that strikes me as a very mild exaggeration. I mean, it strikes me that that if you were a right-wing political figure in Cuba in 1958 that you might think it was a good idea to get out of Dodge before things got a bit uh, biffy. Um, and so they may not have fled Castro in the revolution particularly, but I think they may have fled the the broader, you know, the flood before the, the, the dam broke. Well, and of course, um, the Cuban Revolution didn't only happen in 1959. Yes, to be sure. So, and you know, I think political. Obviously, the reason why he would say that politically is that that, that the Cuban American population in Florida is a very important demographic. So, so the reason why he would say that would make sense. He was born in 1960, whatever, um, you know, and so. Him saying that is, is not a reflection of things that he did, but things his parents may have told him. Right. I mean, that, that's exactly the point I think that's important here. I think there is a distinction between things you might have been told that are family traditions and you know, the actual dates you know, are imprecise. So, so I, I think the reason I, I, mm. I raise this one is I don't think this is an example of a politician lying right. about their past so right. much as this is a family tradition Rooted in a large mm. truth, <laughs> it's, even it's if the mostly facts, true, it's mostly true, true, and I believe not. that he believes it. I don't think you know. I I have my differences with Marco mm. Rubio, but I don't think that's that's one of them. To be sure, frankly. So so, David, you've done you you've cat- you've got lists well, of people in different boxes on your iPad. So, so, so what are the categories well, of lies? So, I mean, I think you've got a couple of different sort of categories of of, of fraudsters and imposters. So I think you've got. People who are the sort of military imposters, and those can be very common. We just talked about those. We've got a large number of people who are claiming um, Native American heritage, and we've talked, I think, about those in, in some previous episodes, um, where they're either making it up entirely uh, or in part. Uh, probably the most famous example of this is um, Aza Earl Carter, uh, who go who claims to be Forrest Carter, who writes The Education of Little Tree. Oh, we is, talked about this yes, before, didn't yes. we? Um, you know, which is a... claims to be an autobiographical story about a, about a Native American boy. He was a white guy who was a George Wallace speechwriter. He wrote the Segregation Now, uh, Segregation Forever speech. Um, so where the fabrication is is, is, is a... You know, complete departure from his own experience. We actually have a bunch of examples of, of other people from the 19th and 20th century uh, pretending to be Native American leaders. Uh, there was a, a guy who 
claimed to be called Chief White Elk, who traveled around Europe as a Native American leader uh, and and stole money from European heiresses and met Mussolini. And he's and Mussolini greeted him as a diplomatic emissary from the Native American nations. Uh, turns out the guy was named Edgar or something. Um, but that's a variation. That's that's inverting the, 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 the European, European aristocrat in America. Exactly. It, 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 that's exactly what that is. Um, another sort of example of a, of a fake Native American. We may have talked about this in a previous episode. Iron Eyes Cody. I don't know oh, so Iron Eyes Cody is most famous for uh, there's this commercial. You've seen the commercial from the 1970s right. of a Native American crying over environmental degradation. Um, yeah, he's Italian, but he, you know presented himself as Native American. So was he claiming to be Native American or was he just an actor who was cast as Native American who happened to be Italian? Um, uh, so I, I get the... I, I probably should need to do some more research on this, but my impression is he, he went by the name Iron Eyes Cody, which okay. sort of gives the impression that he is Native American even if he's not, right? That he's sort of giving himself this sort of... You know, and all these people... Are, there was a guy who called himself Grey Owl who, who was also a British guy who claimed to be Native American. So there's a lot of... That kind of fabrication. Uh, that's going what on about there. politicians? I mean, uh, Elizabeth Warren is the best yes, example, example, right? Well, she's I think was sort of in the Marco Rubio category. My my understanding is that she was told she had Native American ancestry by her family, you know, and uh, and believing things about your family ancestry that you're told as a child seems to be an entirely normal circumstance. Although you know, I think there's there's lots of. Uh, there's lots of white families who claim to have Native American ancestors that may not have. I think that's a, a fairly... Uh, but are there other politicians who are claiming this to apparently advance themselves? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure there are. They, they come, don't come to mind right now. I know there's some in Canada uh, who have claimed First Nations ancestry right. that, that, that didn't. Um, there's, there's famously the uh, Frank uh, Abneganti, I think that's the name, uh, the guy who uh, Catch Me If You Can is based on, who I've acknowledged. I've acknowledged. So sorry, thank you. Um, you know who who claimed to have invented a bunch of, of aliases and, and and doubled as an airline pilot and twelve other things. Yeah, I think he pretended to be a lawyer, mm -hmm. an airline pilot, a, a doctor. He was a variety of well, and not only it seems that did he pretend to do those things and fly, try to fly a plane or whatever it is. But he also seemed to have invented some of those fake um, personas. So afterwards, when he wrote, a, I think he wrote a book about it. Uh, more recently, we have got James Fry, uh, who wrote uh, a, a quote-unquote memoir about his experience in prison and as being a being an ex-con, being a, a drug addict. That was on Oprah, if you remember this. And turns out he fabricated all that. He was never in prison. He was never a drug addict. He was never a, a, a criminal of any kind, and and had. Originally written it as a novel, but when it didn't work as a novel, decided to pitch it as a as an autobiography. So, so I've got two because I know we have to wrap this up. But sure. I two two that struck me. One is terrible, but because we haven't talked that much about women, mm. I have got a woman for you named Julia Lyons, mm. who during the um, flu pandemic, right after the First World War, pretended to be a nurse in Chicago and bilked people out of their money. Uh, by offering them medical treatment. So she's a pretty Yeah, there's a lot of category person. of fake yeah. doctors. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but there's a guy that that, um, <laughs> that I was intrigued by named L.W. Wright. Hmm. And L.W. Wright claimed to be a NASCAR driver 
1982, and he managed to persuade people that Merle Haggard, the country star, was his sponsor. Nice. And he was successful enough that people gave him money and a car, and he raced to Talladega in the Talladega 500 in 1982. Um, he completed 18 of 188 laps. I think it was 188 laps. Uh, so, so he did not get, he didn't do it. And he finished second to last. Only, and the only, the person who finished last crashed. Okay. So, so that was the only reason that he didn't come last. Uh, but still, but, that's... And then he disappeared and he bounced some checks and things like that. So, so we do have, I, I think there is a difference. I mean, apart from the fact that mm. these things are amusing, uh, or some can be amusing, um, between people who are pretending to be something they're not, mm. as opposed to claiming to have had a particular background. So, so there's if, if you're making stuff up about your past mm. in order to advance yourself in the present, which seems to be the what we see politicians yeah. doing, as opposed to somebody claiming to be a NASCAR driver and trying to race in the Talladega 500. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that's the nice thing about claiming to be a, 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 a you know, disinherited European aristocrat is that there are no skills that go along with that, right? Like, they, they, you don't have to be able to do anything. You don't have to be able to fly a plane. You don't have to be able to perform heart surgery. You just have to say, oh, my great-great so-and-so was Duke of such-and-such and was stripped of his title, and I'm the right heir of... Yeah, so Lord Sterling can call himself Lord Sterling, and it doesn't really do anybody any harm. harm. Right. Um, as opposed to people who are inventing... Um, Credentials for themselves. Probably when you're thinking about fraudsters, and there's lots of you know fake doctors. Uh, my favorite is uh, John Brinkley. Oh, the goat testicle guy. He's on my list. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Goat <laughs> so this guy, um, you know, his father was uh, kind of a doctor. He didn't go to medical school, although medical training was a very different thing in the uh, early 20th century than it is today. Uh, he gets himself a, a fake diploma from a, a diploma mill. Um, and he, uh, in in the aftermath of the First World War, World War War, says he can cure uh, first its impotence and then later on its everything by implanting goat testicles into people. First, it's men for impotence, and then later it's he's implanting it into women. He's implanting it into children, um, and this is sort of the cure all uh, uh, procedure that he sort of uh, patents, if you will. He is also an early innovator in radio. He goes on. He's on the. Uh, he has a, a very early radio station uh, in the nineteen twenties. He's basically got a call in show where people say like, you know, call in with their medical problems, and his, his his answer is always like, "You need my special pills that you can only get at my drugstore, or you need an implant of goat testicles." Um, and he's wildly popular. He runs for governor of Kansas twice, and he very nearly wins. Uh, both times, uh, but yeah, the 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 uh, listeners don't don't go testicle schools don't do any good, so don't don't do that. Right. Um, it's an important but, public service announcement. Yes, well, you never know; people might <laughs> medical misinformation is is, is rife uh, everywhere. So, it is, although I believe David, our listeners are smart enough not to implant go testicles into themselves. But the warning yes, is we, we've got a very intelligent audience, and. Uh, <laughs> Much as you might be tempted, yeah, good, right. So, so 
we'll, we'll see what happens with the George Santos story. Uh, it's going to be, be fascinating, I think. We're out of time, so we didn't even get to financial irregularities and Charles Ponzi and everybody else. But undoubtedly, there'll be a scandal in the future and we can return to to that. Right. Uh, So time for last drops, Frank. What you got? David, I want to recommend an an essay in the most recent um, issue of The Atlantic. It's the January-February 2023 issue. And it's by Noah Hawley. And it's called The Myth of the Frontier Won't Die. Holly is a writer and a, and has directed many of the uh, episodes on Fargo, the, um, yes. the uh, TV series that spun out of the Coen Brothers movie. Um, and the subtitle tells, tells it all. He says, uh, in our popular culture and in our politics, we're returning to the Old West. The strong survive and the weak surrender, and differences are resolved at the end of the gun. And he talks about a number of... Um, not just Fargo, his own creation, but also um, uh, Yellowstone, mm. which of course is a, is a kind of dominant program right now, uh, and and The Walking Dead, and the kind of how how Hollywood and popular culture are kind of have remade and reconfigured the Western in a, in a modern context. Very interesting essay uh, from somebody who's actually engaged in that activity. Uh, so I recommend that uh, the myth of the frontier won't die by Noah Hawley. What about you, David? What do you uh, have? I want to recommend a movie, The Pale Blue Eye, oh, right. uh, which is on uh, Netflix. Uh, it's it's uh, the story. It's a crime, murder, mystery kind of thing. Uh, it takes place at West Point, the military academy um, in the antebellum period. Uh, but its uh, premise is, is there, there's a brief period where Edgar Allan Poe went to West Point. For some reason, Poe thought West Point would be a good place for some quiet uh, and a place for thinking and writing, which West Point is not. Um, But it's a murder that takes place at at West Point, and it stars uh, Christian Bale, who plays a retired uh, detective, essentially, uh, and uh, Harry Melling, who plays plays Poe. And there's and lots that, of good Poe references in it and other kinds of things. And that's very meta because, of course, Poe is credited with creating the modern detective, detective story. story. Right. So there's lots of, if, you, if you're if you a Poe aficionado, there's, and I thought it would be appropriate given our topic today, uh, there's lots of, of, of Easter eggs and, and references and whatnot uh, in that. Uh, Harry Mellon, by the way, is the, the same person who played Dudley Dursley in, in the Harry Potter movies. But it's a very different different kind of role. Uh, but but it's a very it's fascinating and uh, seasonally appropriate. As a historian of the period, do, you, do they get the period right more or less? Yes, I think they. I mean, I've 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 looked at the history of, of West Point and what West Point was like uh, during that time when I was working on the book on on surrender. I spent a lot of time reading about. Uh, what West Point was like in the in the eighteen forties and fifties, and they get it, they get it right. They, they right. it looks the, the, including the really stupid uniforms that West Point cadets wore. Um, so it's a uh, it's a film, not a series, because I've no, seen no, the, no, it's yeah, popped up in my feed. feed but yeah, it's it's a film. It's, right. it's a you know, two hour kind of thing. Right. Excellent. Good. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers. David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.